Hi, Dave Emery here. This is For the Record Program number 1313. Update on the destabilization of China Part 2. This is being recorded on September 22nd of the year 2023. Before getting into the main body of the program, uh, several points. Uh, first of all, please get in the habit of checking the Spitfire List com website on a regular basis for the, among other things, the comments made by Parafractal and sometimes other intelligent listeners. Uh, Parafractal has been a major, he is our contributing editor, and he's been a major source of comments. And please get in the habit of checking SpitfireList.com on a regular basis. Also, a couple of links. Uh, these are to be found at the top of each written for the record description and each food for thought post. One of those links will enable you to subscribe to the podcasts of For the Record that are being made by sister station WFMU. So if podcasts are the best way for you to consume the program, and in our smartphone-dominated culture that is increasingly the case for many people, then sister station WFMU is podcasting For the Record, and there is a link that you can click on to subscribe to that podcast. Also, at the top of each written for the record description and at the top of each food for thought post, there is a link that will enable you to obtain the latest 32 gigabyte flash drive of all of my life's work, both printed and recorded, plus and a mini library of old anti-fascist books on easy-to-download PDF files. The current flash drive, which is just out, is current as of, for the record, 1310. The previous drive was only current as of, for the record, 1215. So please do get this. It is available for a very nominal tax-deductible contribution, and I get no money whatsoever from this. Perhaps that could be seen as proof positive of my worst critic's assertion, which is that I am out of my mind. I'm now in my 45th year on the air, and again, all of that work printed and recorded is available on that 32 gigabyte flash drive, plus the mini-library of old anti-fascist books. And again, I could not be more pessimistic about the future, and I emphatically encourage listeners to this program to get that flash drive to make themselves in effect a repository of the uh, events that I believe are going to bring our civilization to an end. It's not a very rosy outlook, but then I'm not, uh, I'm always faced with the choice of being honest about what I think or lying to people. And if I were to say, yep, you know, it, it may look rough, but if we all pull together, you know, we'll, 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 uh, there'll be pie in the sky by and by, so to speak. I don't think that is the case, and uh, I'm not going to lie to you. But anyway, uh, I strongly recommend getting a hold of that, and again, I get no money whatsoever from that flash drive. Now, in our last program, we were talking about, among other things, the... Biden administration's trade barriers uh, basically attempting to strangle China's high-tech economy root and branch, as one observer put it. Uh, that same observer, or I guess it was another observer, uh, felt that uh, the 
restrictions on chips and chip technology that the Biden administration has implemented, uh, would he would only have thought that possible in the event of a war. As we have seen from the long series of programs I've done about COVID, uh, really that war is in effect because COVID is not a naturally occurring virus. It does come from a laboratory. That laboratory is not in China, and it didn't bleep and leak. Uh, basically, the U.S. or the U.S. national security establishment attacked the entire human race, including the American people, with a genetically engineered bat virus. Uh, it is, among other things, the eugenic virus and also the Northwoods virus meant to poison American public opinion against China, really the world's public opinion as well. One of the focal points in recent weeks of uh, the high-tech tensions, so to speak, between China and the U.S. has been the Huawei Corporation, the second largest maker of smartphones in the world. And Huawei was the focal point of some draconian tech sanctions, which cut deeply into its business. However, Huawei has now come out with a phone with a 7NN chip, a very advanced chip and one that was generally considered to be uh, beyond the ability of Chinese to manufacture. That has led, frankly, predictably, to Republican calls to further sanction or further investigate China, assuming that it necessarily was the result of espionage. And there is a great deal of cultural chauvinism and reactionary sentiment involved with that. Uh, what has not received the attention to it is just exactly what Huawei is like as a company. In our last program, we spoke about, uh, we, we uh, recapped and presented some information from the Moon of Alabama blog, which noted that uh, Huawei in the last few years has upped its number of staff, the number of people of employees, and has also significantly increased the amount of its budget or the amount of uh, the percentage of its personnel who are devoted to research and development. And that obviously is something that will get results. What I'm going to do first of all in this program is to read an article from a blog that is presented by a very conservative American publication, namely the National Interest Magazine. It is a conservative publication. It is not, however, fascist and does not have a an hysterical or extremist tone to it. And on September 11th of 2023, in their blog, they had a an article by Chandran, capital C-H-A-N-D-R-A-N, last name Mayer, capital N-A-I-R, I may be mispronouncing that. It's called The Side of Huawei We Don't Know, subtitled, Though Often Condemned and Suspected by Western Policymakers and Experts, the company's origins and unique governance system are poorly understood. And again, assuming or taking into account, I should say, the fact that this is presented on a blog that is part of a very conservative publication, I think the objective, uh, and I believe it is objective, presentation and analysis of Huawei here is worth conserving, both in terms of the hysterical and frankly paranoid uh, reactions of a large percentage of the American and Western public to uh, any advances that are made by Huawei, 
And really, I think it gives uh, a clear picture of why Huawei is an excellent company and one that is in a position to uh, make advancements because of the excellence of its corporate structure and the way it uh, allocates its resources, both uh, financial and uh, its personnel. Once again, uh, from the blog presented by the National Interest from September 11th, 2023, the side of Huawei we don't know, though often condemned and suspected by Western policymakers and experts, the company's origins and unique government system are poorly understood. Hopefully the reading of this article will uh, give a better understanding of it. China's meteoric rise in the short space of 30 years to become the second largest economy in the world and a global power has been by far the biggest story of the 21st century. It has also unfortunately been accompanied by a great deal of worry by a fearful West, which together with the global mainstream media has painted an ugly picture of the country's remarkable pace of development. One of the most visible manifestations of this progress is Huawei, by the way, so capital H-U-A-W-E-I. One more time. One of the most visible manifestations of this progress is Huawei, a Chinese company and now the world's largest maker of telecommunications gear. Yet the company's growth has been accompanied by fear and mistrust from the West, particularly from the United States, which regards the firm as a potential threat to U.S. national security. A a great part of Huawei's supposed infamy can be boiled down to two things. The first is that the company is actually very well run and extremely innovative, a fact that Westerners, convinced of their own technical superiority and the relationship between technological innovation and their particular set of political and cultural values, find unnerving. The second is the view that because it is a Chinese tech firm and its founder was in the military as well as a member of the Chinese Communist Party, it must be controlled by the Chinese government. This latter view demonstrates how little is understood of modern China, especially the relationship between China's commercial ecosystem and the state. This lack of knowledge relating to Huawei's origins, methodology, and relationship with the Chinese state makes it a recurring target. It would behoove Washington to know more about the company and how it came to be first. The next section is called Huawei's Origins. For those unaware of the struggles within China after the creation of the People's Republic of China in 1949, it is worth remembering that even in the 1970s and 1980s, there were parts of China where famine was not unusual. Parenthetically, I would add that one of the more remarkable statistics about China, which, as I've said before, did a remarkable pivot. Basically, it pivoted from communism to capitalism while keeping the chassis of its political system intact. There is indeed private enterprise in China. However, the overall system is governed by the Chinese Communist Party. It really, the the hysterical bugaboo in this country notwithstanding, it is, is a classic public-private partnership. In 1981, 
88% of the Chinese population was at or beneath the poverty level. That was down to point, uh, 07 of the population by 2015. That is a remarkable change in a remarkably short period of time, relatively speaking. Even more remarkable is the fact that the Chinese middle class was three, was 4% of the population in 2002. 16 years later, it had increased to 31%, roughly an eight-fold increase in 16 years. And again, uh, those figures uh, are, among other things, corroborated by that well-known vehicle of international Marxist propaganda, the analysis division of the CIA. Also, the World Bank corroborates it as well. Obviously, I'm being sarcastic there. Uh, One more time. For those unaware of the struggle within China after the creation of the People's Republic of China in 1949, it is worth remembering that even in the 1970s, and 1980s, there were parts of China where famine was not unusual. One such region was Jiangsu Province, where people were forced to forage in the forest for berries, nuts, and anything edible they could get a hold of to survive. Bear in mind that this was also a time during which neighboring Hong Kong and Singapore, too, saw fast food like McDonald's and Kentucky Fried Chicken become ubiquitous. This period of persistent poverty and suffering in China was the result of ongoing internal struggles and ill-considered policies that failed to support the country. One man who grew up during this period was Ren Zhengfei. I may be mispronouncing that, capital R-E-N is the first name, last name capital Z-H-E-N-G-F-E-I. His family was so poor that he would forego some of his meager rations so that his siblings could eat and would instead mix his meals with rice bran to sustain himself. He used to go into the forest to pick anything edible for the family to survive. An early life of struggle motivated him as a young man to embark on a most remarkable journey. Ren joined the Chinese military after studying architecture and engineering. He eventually left the army with bigger entrepreneurial plans, driven by a desire to contribute to society. He taught himself the workings of computers and other nascent digital technologies. After several failed forays into business, and in a last blow of the dice in 1987 at age 43, he formed the Huawei, meaning, quote, committed to China and making a difference, unquote, with the intention of selling program-controlled switches. The company is now, in many ways, one of the most recognized brands in the world, partly due to its innovations and market capitalization, and partly for being caught in the geopolitical struggle between West between the West and China. Lin's story of deprivation and desperation stands in stark contrast to that of many of the founders of today's tech giants. It should also provide a clue into the resilience of the company, the sense of positivity that it is imbued with, and how it plans to withstand current external pressures. The launch of a new smartphone, demonstrating that Huawei has managed to overcome U.S. sanctions and can innovate by itself, has drawn rapt attention. Similarly, although it did not make the global headlines, the company also recently announced the introduction of its own enterprise resource planning software, which ends its reliance on Oracle software. 
Many more innovations are expected, proving the old adage that necessity is the mother of invention. What makes Huawei so innovative? Understanding this requires looking at three aspects of the company and how it is run, which provides insights for observers. The next section, Huawei's governance and ownership system. It is often wrongly assumed that Huawei operates as a commercial extension of the Chinese Communist Party and is run similarly, where the founder Ren Zhengfei holds absolute authority, closely overseeing a very top-down hierarchical system. The reality appears rather differently. The privately held company is 100% employee-owned, with Ren holding 0.7% of the company's shares. This governance structure is unique to Huawei and draws from extensive studies of best practices from across the world, customized to suit its needs. The company operates under a collective leadership model with numerous checks and balances, where shareholder representatives and those sitting in decision-making bodies are democratically elected. The shareholders meeting, the company's premier decision-making forum, decides on the company's major matters such as capital increases, profit distribution, and election of the members of the board of directors and supervisory board. Employees are represented by the Trade Union Committee, and the Representatives Commission is the employee vehicle through which the union fulfills shareholder responsibilities and exercises shareholder rights. The shareholding employees with voting rights elect the commission on a one-vote-per-share basis, after which the commission elects the company's board of directors and supervisory board on a one-vote-per-person basis. These events are transparent and even live-streamed to all employees. As the founder of Huawei, Ren's influence and authority comes from the respect he has gained for his achievements, a particularly Chinese approach towards organizational harmony and order, rooted in a culture of respect for elders and leaders. While Ren carries veto rights on board decisions, it is a matter of record that he has exercised this right only a few times, and typically on technology and business direction, as is common in most privately held firms anywhere in the world. He is depicted internally as one who prefers to share his vision and ideas through company-wide addresses that serve as guidance on direction-making. The main motivation for setting up such a government—one more time—the main motivation for setting up such a government structure is to ensure the company's longevity and to enable it to achieve sustainable growth. Being a privately held company has allowed Huawei to design structures and set targets for the long term, able to focus on core vision and mission, inclusive of customers and employees. While recent sanctions have impacted Huawei's smartphone business and short-term profits, there was a 69% year-on-year decline in net profit in 2022. Huawei has continued to make strategic investments and devoted even more capital to research and development, or R&D. In 2022, 
They invested 25% of their revenue in R&D, equivalent to 161.5 billion won, more than any company in the world outside of America in absolute terms, and more than the tech giants as a percentage of revenue. For comparison, Amazon, the world's biggest spender on R&D, and Alphabet invested around 14% of their revenue on R&D in the same year. And again, uh, Huawei, 25%. Despite not being able to launch high-end 5G phones globally, the smartphone business suits have not... One more time. Despite not, despite not being able to launch high-end 5G phones globally, the smartphone business units have not laid off any staff. One more time. This is worth noting. Uh, just imagine uh, an American company doing this. It, it, it will require imagination. Despite not being able to launch high-end 5G phones globally, the smartphone business units have not laid off any staff. This is also a cultural difference that is often misunderstood and unappreciated where the employee is seen as being part of the family. This is such that when hard times arrive, everyone bears with it and goes into survival mode. The launch of the new Mate 60, Mate 60 Pro, and Mate 60 Pro Plus, that's spelled M-A-T-E, I may be mispronouncing that, and Mate X5, which is a new version of its foldable phones, is a testament to the wisdom of this strategy. Huawei's government structure is what allows it to reinvest in the company, its facilities, R&D, and its employees, even during times of business downturn and external pressures. The next section, a culture of learning from the world and global openness. Huawei's emphasis on hard work based on the Confucius tradition of collective resilience has enabled it to attract talent who firmly believe they can overcome obstacles and create solutions that best achieve the company's official goal of, quote, staying customer-centric and creating value for customers, unquote. Employees are not driven only by the financial awards on offer, but also by a sense of purpose and the need to be engaged in finding solutions to problems. The company's appeal has enabled it to attract the best talent China has to offer. In coming up with the company's current corporate governance model, what is noteworthy is that Huawei's leadership spent time studying the governance models of successful, long-lasting companies from around the world, including Japanese family-owned companies and corporations from France, Germany, and the United States. They actively considered the merits and the weaknesses of different models, learning from lessons of success and failure, taking these ideas and customizing them for Huawei. The design of Huawei's supervisory board is a good example. It drew inspiration from German corporate government structures and the government's principles developed by Fredmund Malik, F-M-A-L-I-K is the last name. However, Huawei's structure is different from German companies in that the representatives of shareholders sit at the top. In addition, 
the supervisory board, does not only supervise the board of directors but plays an active role in developing the leadership pipeline at different levels of the company and setting regulations for how the company operates. Though often condemned and suspected by Western policymakers, oh no, that's just different. the participation of employees is also unique. All members of the supervisory board and board of directors are Huawei employees. It is also a requirement that shareholder representatives nominated to the board have contributed to the company and demonstrated the requisite leadership skills. This last couple of sentences uh, I'm going to repeat because they are very important. Well, it's all important, but the participation of employees is also unique. All members of the supervisory board and board of directors are Huawei employees. It is also a requirement that shareholder representatives nominated to the board have contributed to the company and demonstrated the requisite leadership skills. A similar mindset of learning from different models was applied to succession planning and the establishment of its rotating co-chair system five years ago. Huawei places an emphasis on developing leaders within the company. To achieve the system it wanted, it studied different leadership structures from established companies with similar approaches, including family-funded founded companies. By retaining top talent, the company believes it can overcome the limitations of any one individual and provide checks and balances. Huawei presently has three rotating co-chairs. When co-chairs are off-duty, they visit other countries, meet employees, learn about the business, and importantly have space and time to think, which is given a lot of emphasis. Huawei's open worldview and its appreciation for other cultures are most dramatically reflected in its R&D campus in the center of Dong Wan, the capital D-O-N-W-G-U-A-N, nicknamed the European City, unquote, where 30,000 staff work in 12 different villages modeled after nine different European companies. Manicured gardens surround life-size replicas of the most famous cities and architecture in Europe, including the Palace of Versailles, Heidelberg Castle, Amsterdam, and Verona. Bobbed across the villages are numerous restaurants and cafes, a reflection of Rin's advocacy of coffee culture. There is also an electric train service so that no one needs to drive within the campus. The concept of the campus was conceived as part of a design competition and was selected for its uniqueness, setting it apart from the usual pet company or Chinese-inspired designs. The organization and its employees clearly continue to have an appreciation for promoting global cultural exchanges and learning from non-Chinese models of success, prominent observers have taken note of this. The next section, a commitment to social obligations and making a difference. Many might be surprised to learn that Huawei considers sustainability to be an integral part of its business priorities. It has four sustainability strategies, all of which are aligned with its vision and mission digital inclusion, security and trustworthiness, environmental protection, and healthy and harmonious ecosystem. Each of these strategies is integrated with the company's business 
and product development. For example, Huawei's products and solutions are increasingly designed to help the business and their clients reduce energy consumption and CO2 emissions. While the company does release annual sustainability reports, these do not adhere to the typical Western ESG, Environmental, Social, and Corporate Governance, or CSR, Corporate Social Responsibility, reporting. Similarly, the company does not place too much of an emphasis on philanthropy and has not set up a foundation or a philanthropic arm. Instead, it invests in developing cost-effective and sustainable solutions using its technology and working with local and multilateral partners to achieve its objectives in countries where the needs are most critical. Again, this is really interesting and important. Similarly, the company does not place too much of an emphasis on philanthropy and has not set up a foundation or philanthropic arm. Instead, it invests in developing cost-effective and sustainable solutions using its technology and working with local and multilateral partners to achieve its objectives in countries where the needs are most critical. Consider Tech for All. That's capital T E, it's T E C H O in capitals, the number four, and then A L L in caps. Consider Tech for All, the company's long-term digital inclusion initiative designed to produce innovative technologies and solutions that enable an inclusive and sustainable world. They have applied AI and cloud to learn from the sound of engineering <laughs> Too much sex stuff here. They have applied AI and cloud to learn the sound of endangered animals, rainforests, and wetlands to remotely monitor and prevent illegal hunting and logging. This application has been used in many countries in Latin America and Europe and has the potential to be deployed in other fields. And again, uh, people who are environmentally concerned, I think, should uh, take note of this. They have applied AI and cloud to learn the sound of endangered animals, rainforests, and wetlands to remotely monitor and prevent illegal hunting and logging. This application has been used in many countries in Latin America and Europe and has the potential to be deployed in other fields. Another example is Rural Star, that's capital R-U-R-A-L, capital S-T-A-R, one word. As part of its commitment to rural development and bridging the digital divide to boost development in remote areas, Huawei invested in innovating simpler and smaller technology for data transmission. The Rural Star solution allows a base station to be constructed on a simple pole instead of a dedicated tower with low power features that can be powered using six solar panels. Rural Star is widely recognized as one of the greenest and most cost-effective solutions available for remote and rural communities. One more time. Rural Star is widely recognized as one of the greenest and most cost-effective solutions available for remote and rural communities. Notably, the business decision to service rural areas comes at an estimated 30% reduction in profit margins compared with a traditional focus on high-density urban areas only. 
globally. This technology services small villages of several thousand residents at a 70% cost reduction compared to traditional solutions. Following its first pilot in Ghana in 2017, over 60 countries have implemented Rural Star and over 50 million people in rural areas have benefited. As an example of how such projects are funded, in 2020 in Ghana, the Ministry of Communications and the Ghana Investment for Electronic Communications signed a financing agreement with Export-Import Bank of China for Huawei to deploy more than 2,000 rural star sites for Ghana to provide voice and data services for over 3.4 million people. Within its goal to drive digitalization, Huawei has also consistently investing one more time. Within its goal to drive digitalization, Huawei has also been consistently investing in green transformation. Beyond a significant increase in the use of renewable energy within their own operations, a 42.3% increase from 2020, an increased energy efficiency of their products is also an important metric in their innovation process. A company reports a 1.9 pounds increase in energy efficiency in their main products since 2019, which in turn helps their customers and industry partners reduce their carbon footprint. More broadly, Huawei's digital power technology is being deployed and used in many solar farms globally. The idea is to manage watts with bits to help produce better clean energy and cut emissions. By the end of 2021, Huawei Digital Power had helped customers generate 482.9 billion kilowatts of green power and save about 14.2 billion kilowatts, that's K, small k, capital W, capital H, I think that's kilowatts of electricity. These efforts have resulted in a reduction of nearly 230 million tons in CO2 emissions, equivalent to planting 320 million trees. The ability to choose to meet its social commitments and to take concrete steps toward realizing its corporate vision beyond emission statements is relatively unique to Huawei. At a time when companies are striving to meet ESG goals, and overcome the fundamental tension between short-term priorities and investments for sustainable growth, Huawei works to overcome such challenges by seeing its products and services as key enablers of sustainable development. It is committed to developing information and communications technologies for reducing carbon emissions, promoting renewable energy, and contributing to the circular economy. Huawei strives to promote energy conservation and emission reduction in its own operations and to use more renewable energy. This is possible to achieve, this is possible to achieve due to internal consensus across the leadership team to make strategic choices aligned with their sustainability agenda, the desire to invest in long-term ambitions, and the capacity to innovate new products that will allow them to achieve their sustainability goals. And the last conclusion is a company that isn't going away. Huawei's success on the global stage, based upon excellence in delivering new innovations, demonstrates that China has much to teach the rest of the world. Yet this success came about by a strategy of openness, 
and a willingness to learn from others. The company's critics, scrambling to respond to recent developments, ought to take note. Yeah, they, they should. I don't think they're likely to, at least not in the U.S., but uh, who knows? Now, to give you a different perspective, I'm going to read uh, an article from uh, the blog called Learning from China. Now, this is written by a guy who is a foreign professor, but he is on the staff of a Chinese university. And uh, the, name, the gentleman's name is John Ross, and he's senior fellow at Chongyang Institute at Renmin University of China and the winner of China's top book award for foreign writers on China. Now, granted, this uh, particular article uh, may have a degree of bias to it. I can't objectively evaluate the data presented here. Uh, however, I would note that China is still a developing country. It's huge. It's developing very quickly, but it is still a developing country, so its growth figures, uh, I think, have to be parsed in terms of the fact that it is still developing. Nonetheless, it is developing incredibly quickly in relation to uh, more established or more developed economies. And uh, this reads, Once again, the Western media establishment, and sadly some on the left, are talking up an impending economic disaster in China when the truth is quite the opposite, shows John Ross. And the article reads, In the last four years, covering the period of the COVID pandemic, China's economy has grown two and a half times as fast as the U.S., 15 times as fast as France, 23 times as fast as Japan, 45 times as fast as Germany, and 480 times as fast as Britain. To add in smaller G7 countries, China has grown four times as fast as Canada and 11 times as fast as Italy. China's outperformance of advanced capitalist countries is even greater in per capita terms, a still better measure of productivity changes and potential for increased living standards. China's per capita GDP grew three times as fast as the U.S., five times as fast as Italy, 44 times as fast as Japan or France, and 260 times as fast as Britain, while per capita GDP fell in Germany and Canada. China's outperformance of developing capitalist countries shows the same pattern. China's per capita 4.4% increase in GDP annual average growth compares to 2.6% in India, 1.3% in Brazil, or 0.9% in South Africa. What is important about such economic growth, of course, is not abstract statistics, but its meaning for the real lives of ordinary people. The International Labor Organization data on real Inflation-adjusted wages shows that up to the latest available data for most countries to 2022 and for India to 2021, China's annual real wage growth was 4.7%. That again, according to the International Labor Organization. One more time. The International Labor Organization data on real inflation-adjusted wages shows that up to the latest available data for most countries to 2022 and for India to 2021, China's annual real wage growth was 4.7%.
for Britain, it was 0.1%. For the U.S., it was 0.3%. In France, it was minus 0.4%. In Germany, minus 0.7%. And in India, minus 1.3%. Given this enormous economic outperformance by China of capitalist countries, any rational discussion that should be taking place in Western mainstream media about the international economic situation would be, quote, why is China's economy hugely outperforming the U.S. and the rest of the capitalist West? And, quote, what lessons are to be learned from China's socialist economy that is so outperforming the West? And again, uh, China really has, uh, you know, there's all the bugaboo about the Chinese Communist Party. It really has a classic public-private partnership, and uh, there is indeed a great deal of private capital in China. They have many billionaires, and they are going very quickly. Again, Chinese middle class was 4% of the population in 2002, up to 31% 16 years later. That is enormous. And if we were not reacting to China in the way, but I think Glenn Pinchback, an officer at Fort Sill, Oklahoma, uh, stated in a letter to New Orleans DA Jim Garrison, who was investigating the JFK assassination, and uh, Glenn Pinchback had some information about some of the Nazis that Garrison was investigating, and Pinchback wrote to him about, quote, a Nazi plot gargantuan in scope to enslave America in the name of anti-communism. I think Pinchback's words, certainly one cannot accuse him of being a communist or a, a Chinese subversive. Again, an officer at Fort Sill, Oklahoma, which, uh, among other things, is uh, an artillery training facility. Glenn Pinchback wrote to Jim Garrison. <clears throat> Again, a, a Nazi plot, gargantuan in scope, to enslave America in the name of anti-communism. And that, in connection with the uh, uh, National Interest blog there, the article by Chandra Nair about Huawei, uh, I think this should spur a, a, a realistic thinker to begin doing some realistic thinking about what changes might be made in the U.S. Don't bet on that happening. Continuing with this article, for the left, the issue needs to be assessed and publicized for the left, the issue that needs to be assessed and publicized is, quote, why are real wages rising 18 times as fast in China as in the U.S., 44 times as fast as in Britain, while in France, Germany, or India, real wages are falling? By the way, I would add that uh, Germany is now in recession, and Russia, again, the, the focal point of all of these draconian sanctions, Russia has now passed Germany as the number five uh, economy in the world in terms of GDP, and they are right on Japan's heels, Japan being number four for the time being. Continuing. Indeed, the present author would argue that much greater stress should be placed on the latter point. The international left has begun to absorb that China has lifted more than 850 million people out of World Bank to find poverty in 40 years, by far the greatest poverty reduction achievement in human history. But it has not yet internalized how rapidly not only the poorest, but average living standards are rising in China, far faster than in any Western country. But of course, this real economic situation can't be discussed in the mainstream media because its conclusions would be too damaging for the capitalist West. Instead, 
a type of mad discussion is unfolding with U.S. claims about China's economy becoming increasingly bizarre, one might say deranged, as they get further and further out of touch with reality. President Joe Biden, for example, recently made a speech claiming China's economic growth rate is, quote, around 2%, unquote, when it was 5.5% in the first half of this year. And as already noted, China's economy is growing two and a half times as fast as the U.S. Biden bizarrely claimed that in China, quote, the number of people who are of retirement age is larger than the number of people of working age, unquote, entirely false and inaccurate by a figure of many hundreds of millions of people. Discussion in the U.S. financial media equally refuses to face real facts. Because I am an economist, every morning after the overall news, I switch on Bloomberg TV to catch up on the latest economic data. Discussion there is like Alice Through the Looking Glass, the book, the principle of which is that everything is reversed compared to the real world. Apparently, according to Bloomberg's analysis, China's annual average of 4.5% a year growth in the last four years is an economy in severe crisis, whereas the U.S.'s 1.8% is allegedly strong growth, not to speak of Britain's 0.1%. Similar rhetoric, out of all contact with factual reality, pervades the Financial Times, The Economist, or The Wall Street Journal. The left is well used to such U.S. political lying, the completely fake claim that North Vietnamese ships attacked the U.S. naval vessels on August 4, 1964 in the Gulf of Tonkin, used to launch the Vietnam War, or the equally untrue claim that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction to justify the U.S. invasion were classic examples. Today, the U.S. systematically lies about the state of China and its own economy because it is crucial for U.S. capitalism to prevent its own citizens and close allies from understanding the real economic trends. It is further proof, if one were needed, of the truth that if the real world and a theory do not coincide, only one of two things can be done. One is to abandon the theory, the other is to abandon the real world. In this case, the theory is that the U.S., because it is capitalist, should outperform socialist China. The real world is actual economic performance in which China continues to outperform the U.S. and other capitalist countries by an enormous margin. Unable to abandon its theory, the U.S. is therefore forced to abandon the real world. Hence, the demented denial of comparative economic performance noted at the beginning of this article. While the left should expect lies from capitalism, which is rather shameful, one more time, while the left should expect lies from capitalism, which is rather shameful, is that some sections of the left repeat such nonsense, apparently believing that if they put in a few left phrases into an analysis taken from Western press, this constitutes, quote, socialist, unquote, commentary. I'll be going to reject that, quote, that the, quote, left, unquote, in this country is absolutely controlled, uh, as the late brilliant political comedian Mort Saul noted in his autobiography, Heartland, the CIA staffs the left. The right takes care of itself. In his staffing of the right... Continuing, for example, an article in the New Left Review's sidecar called China is a, quote, zombie economy. Some zombie, unquote, when China's economy is going anywhere between two and a half times 
and 480 times as fast as any major capitalist economy. The real battle shows the reality is simple. China has far outgrown any Western capitalist economy for more than 40 years. It continues to do so. The result in China is by far the world's most rapid rise in living standards, not only for the poorest, but for the whole average population. It is known as the practical advantage of socialism. It is fact. We know why the U.S. has to make up big lies about it. There is no justification for sections of the left echoing them. And again, uh, China is still a developing nation. The U.S. and others are developed. But the article does make some uh, very good points about the skewing of coverage in the U.S. I think that article, that blog article from the National Interest, again, a conservative U.S. publication, is one that should definitely be uh, factored in. Another thing, too, there's something that... Uh, really is quite remarkable is the notion that China is always censorship, etc., etc. I mean, there's censorship there. There's censorship in the U.S. As anyone who has uh, uh, attempted to uh, tell the truth, uh, as the uh, Turkish proverb has it, he who tells the truth gets chased out of nine villages, at least in the U.S. Uh, it's remarkable to read, for example, the New York Times, which you know, constantly badmouths China. One of the things they do in order to badmouth China is to select things from Chinese media or Chinese social uh, media to uh, to point out how bad China is. Well, if China were the censoring entity that it is portrayed as being in this country, those kinds of uh, points of information would not be available. Read the South China Morning Post, for example. It regularly criticizes or publishes news that is critical of the Chinese establishment or government or businesses or many other things as well. Uh, representative of the spin that Western media had is the following article from The Guardian, which is no longer a particularly uh, laudatory British publication. It used to be, but it has swung way to the right. And this is from The Guardian of September 13th of 2023. It's by Helen Davidson in Taipei. That's in Taiwan. Measures include making it easier for Taiwanese people to live and work in China, but the plan comes amid major military exercises. China's government has unveiled a, quote, new path towards integrated development, unquote, with Taiwan, including proposals to make it easier for Taiwanese people to live, study, and work in China. And this has not been reported by most media in this country. At the same time, it sent the largest number of warships to gather in years in the waters on Taiwan's east, in what analysis in one, one more time. At the same time, it sent the largest number of warships to gather in years to the waters on Taiwan's east. In what analysts said, always watch out for phrases, in what analysts said, what analysts? In what analysts said signaled the choice between peaceful, quote, reunification and military violence just months out from Taiwan's presidential election. The new measures were released by the ruling Communist Party's Central Committee and the State Council on Tuesday, said the coastal province of Fujian, that's capital F-U-J-I-A-N, I may be mispronouncing that, would become a, quote, demonstration zone, unquote, for integrated development. The 21 measures include facilitating Taiwanese people to live in Fujian and access social services, expanding enrollment of Taiwanese students in Fujian schools, 
and deepening industrial cooperation. The move is aimed at deepening cross-state integrated development in all fields and advancing the peaceful reunification of the motherland, unquote, said an official state media outlet, China Daily. Now, contrast this, by the way, with the, the press about the, quote, Chinese spy balloon, unquote, which eventually turned out did not have uh, advanced spying equipment on it, and it, it, just, it was uh, literally a lot of hot air. And yet it became a co-celebra in the American media. Uh, there then uh, follows uh, really more or less typically spun Western media coverage of China. The Global Times, a hawkish state-backed news outlet, described the document as, quote, equivalent to outlining the future development blueprint of Taiwan Island. I would not call that particularly hawkish. It's uh, fairly uh, straightforward. And again, the, the ex- extremism of the Global Times is fundamentally exaggerated in the West. I read the, the publication from time to time, and you know, it has its spin. It's, it's um, a, a Chinese governmental uh, publication, but it, it just isn't as rabid as we're told it is. Uh, continuing, China Bailey said the, quote, pair cities, unquote, of Xiamen and Qinmen and Fuzhou and Matsu would play, quote, an even more prominent role. The islands of Qinmen, one more time, the islands of Qinmen and Matsu sit just a few kilometers from the Chinese mainland and have some cultural and economic ties, but are governed by Taiwan. Taiwan's media extensively covered the announcement with a particular focus on measures encouraging Taiwanese to buy homes and invest in Fujian. Responses were skeptical, with many pointing to the property market crisis in China. And again, um, one of the things that the Western media do is to cherry-pick things that support their uh, uh, point of view. Uh, skipping down, one finds not all were opposed a young TV production assistant, Shin, capital S-H-I-N, said she was interested in the proposals to broaden exchanges for students and for the TV and radio industry. Quote, I believe that any opportunity to promote, to promote cross-state exchanges and mutual benefits is excellent, unquote, she said. If there is an opportunity, I would be interested in going to China, unquote. And the rest is uh, discussion of the uh, Chinese military and uh, essentially uh, propagandized uh, coverage of what uh, the uh, the Chinese are doing. But again, that has not been covered by most media in this country. Uh, you've got to do some digging to find out that that is even taking place. And uh, of course... <laughs> Uh, previewing what we're going to talk about in our next program. We're going to update uh, COVID and related things. The following comes from Fortune Magazine, again, a very conservative publication, from September 16th of 2023. This article is by Aaron, E-R-I-N, Prater, capital P-R-A-T-E-R is the last name. COVID levels are so high, they're hovering near 2020's initial peak as the World Health Organization urges those at high risk to take any booster they can get their hands on. Reads in part, and we'll go into this at greater length in our next program. U.S. COVID infections are hovering near levels of the pandemic's first peak in 2020 and approaching the Delta peak of late 2021, according to wastewater surveillance 
and modeling by forecasters. It's yet another sign that while the official pandemic state may be over, the days of COVID are far from it. Viral wastewater levels are not far behind all of the pandemic's 2020 peaks except for one, the initial peak of March of 2020, which they've already surpassed. And they lag just slightly below levels seen during the deadly Delta peak of late 2021, according to BioBot Analytics, which monitors such data for the federal government. A forecast issued this week by Jay Wyland, W-E-I-L-A-N-D, a leading COVID modeler, came to the same conclusions. On Thursday, Wyland estimated that 650,000 Americans are becoming infected daily. 650,000 Americans becoming infected daily, with 1 in 51 Americans currently infected with COVID. An additional 7-10% of the U.S. population will be infected over the next month and a half, Wyland predicted. And again, we'll go into this at greater length in our next program. Uh, what we're going to do is listen to a uh, roughly 55-second, uh, formerly Twitter video of Professor Jeffrey Sachs, who headed the Lancet's COVID uh, Commission on uh, Inquiring into COVID and its Origins. This was originally on Twitter and has been uh, excised from Twitter. However, here is the audio. I'll add one provocative statement. We could take it up later. It may shock you or not shock you, or you may say, I already know that, Professor Sachs. But I chaired a commission for the Lancet for two years on COVID. I'm pretty convinced it came out of uh, U.S. lab biotechnology, not out of nature, just to mention after two years of intensive work on this. So it's a blunder, in my view, of biotech, not an accident of a natural spillover. We don't know for sure. I should be absolutely clear. But there's enough evidence that it should be looked into, and it's not being investigated, not in the United States, not anywhere. And I think for real reasons that they don't want to look underneath the uh, uh, underneath the uh, the rug control. But again, Professor Jeffrey Sachs from the uh, now excised Twitter video. Uh, recall that uh, at the top of each written for the record description and at the top of each food for thought post, there are two links, one of which will enable you to subscribe to the uh, podcasts being offered by sister station WFMU. The other one will enable you to obtain a 32 gigabyte flash drive with all of my roughly 45 years work both printed and recorded available on it and a mini library of old anti-fascist books. This current flash drive is available, uh, is current as a program, for the record program 1310, and I get no money whatsoever from this. This concludes for the record program number 1313. It is update on the destabilization of China Part 2, being recorded on September 22nd of the year 2023. I'm Dave Emery. Have fun.